0: She said, you need to get rid of this car because it is really bad for the environment and you need to buy a Tesla, (laughs) right? This is BoxCast, a conversation about current events, culture, and e-commerce logistics from Pitney Bowes. Okay, this is part two of a two-part episode. In part one, you'd have heard John, our head of marketing, talking to Mike, our head of North American sales, and Sylvain, our sustainability lead. Among the juicy green things they covered, what sustainability practices resonate with online shoppers and some of the earth-friendly initiatives we love seeing from online brands. So if you haven't heard part one, go check it out. We'll go grab a carbon credit while you're waiting. And then... Come back for part two. So last year, NRF, I think, pegged returns at something like $430 billion across all channels, right? And we talked about merchants, of course, I was going to say have a love-hate relationship with returns. may just be hate. But, you know, the love part is you got to have convenient returns to build loyalty. But I think if retailers had a magic wand and they could just make them go away, they would. But that's not a reality, certainly in e-commerce. But how might you make returns go away? What are some of the tactics that you might consider? And so we we asked consumers in the last 12 months about their proclivity to re-gift a return, right? So it's not going to be returned at all. They're going to give it to somebody else. Turns out most people don't do that. Only 20%-ish say that they would even consider that. But when you ask them like, hey, do you think re-gifting benefits the environment? The answer is, is almost half say, they agree. So there's a disconnect there in what they're doing and what they know. And so we wanted to find out what what would make them more likely to actually re-gift one of these items versus return it. And so we put a bunch of options in front of folks. I will tell you out of the gate, what doesn't work is promotions and coupons. So leave that at home. The idea to donate to charity was better, about a third said that that would influence them but the number one idea around getting consumers to let's say regift an item that needed to be returned as opposed to returning it was to offer the option to gift the item to an individual or, or a family that's in need and that was at 47% almost half said that so you know when you read it it's like wow that that does make a lot of sense people do want to do the right thing you know it seems like this the personal factor here outweighs the idea of some of these other faceless options that might exist. So that, that was something that we thought was was pretty cool. I don't know if anyone um, has actually got that set up, but if if the entrepreneurs are out there, that, that could be an idea. So that was a good insight that we saw. All right, so let me, let me press on. I've got one more here that is actually hot off the presses. I think it was either last week or the week before. This is a good one, too. So we ask consumers what they would be willing to pay to offset the carbon footprint of their online order, right? So an individual order, what what in your mind would you be willing to pay? And so, I don't know, in my head, I, I think about, let's say, I don't know, $75 to $100 overall AOV across all e-commerce, something like that. So how much would a consumer be willing to pay to help offset the carbon footprint of that? of that order you guys want to take any guesses single shipment i'll give you because it's a it's a hard one to ask but it is a single digit number i would venture three dollars yeah okay mike any
1: many guesses That's for a dollar one dollar
0: $1. all right so sylvan's optimism is a is, is a little there's a little closer overall a third of consumers okay so it's this is a third of the people would pay three dollars and 42 cents to offset the carbon footprint of the single order right which is not nothing but here is the part that is really most interesting that i mentioned at the top top of the call which is boxpole has an ability to slice and dice uh, across a whole bunch of different cuts demographics certainly being one of them and so when we looked at the data from that standpoint 52% of gen z right so this is people roughly from the age of 10 to 25 would be willing to pay for the offset compared to a third overall. Here's the even more striking thing is that this group, a group that, you know, if you had to generalize, does not have that much income, right? They're just early on in their life, <laughs> right? Right? They'd be willing to pay more than double the overall average. So they would pay 7 almost $7 in almost 40 cents on an individual order to help offset the carbon footprint. We thought that that was staggering and awesome at the same time because of who they are and the fact that this is, you know, probably a, a bigger percentage of their income than many of the others. I got a little depressed when you looked at, you know, how how it's stratified across all the other groups and essentially it it got worse as you got older, right, <laughs> right, right? So, so I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but I certainly thought, oh, this, you know, I guess we're doing a better job of raising our kids here and I I have a story I want I want to tell about that, but I'm curious to get your guys' take.
2: I think it is consistent with everything we see about the role of sustainability in society, but also in business. Clearly there is a growing need for sustainability. It started with with few things. where people maybe were looking for a way to express it, but not exactly sure how to how to do it. But it became increasingly clear that sustainability was a business issue simply because of the demographic and demographic as client, as employees, as member of a society. And it's I saw the other day just a very intuitively easy to understand graph of depending on your age, what was the likely temperature increase, global temperature increase you were likely to see. And of course, when you start talking about the climate change at the horizon of 2050, if you are above a certain age, 2050, well, maybe you don't exactly expect to see it. But when you take of Gen Z, okay, they will have teenage kids at that age or something like that when 2050 is around so yes they will have to to live with the consequences so it's intuitively i'm, I'm not surprised at all by this uh, by this finding yes
0: yeah
1: yeah yeah there, there was an interesting study that mit put out a couple of years ago and they do some great research in sustainable supply chains and there's this i, I believe it was a retailer in mexico where. They were trying to actually change the whole dynamic, right? Rather than saying, would you pay for a carbon offset? Let's look at the the difference of uh, sending something via air versus via ground, but translate in the number of trees. The other thing is they did like an AB study where they looked at instead of saying saving trees, what if we use the phrase killing trees? Okay, so (laughs) here's what they looked at. If you wanted the overnight delivery, you would have to kill or it would cause 99 trees to die (laughs) versus moving a ground. 67% of the consumers then chose ground. (laughs) There is also something there like, you know, maybe when you expose it that way or you give somebody, just give them more data, right? And I don't know if you look at flights on Google and that tells you the carbon output of the flight now. And. And it's interesting. I actually looked at this last night, and it, it gave me a whole like. Do you find this helpful? Does it actually help you change? And there are times you look at it and you go, "Well, why? What is going on with this flight? It's like twice the carbon footprint of of this other flight." I if anything, it makes you pause and and ask do i need to go this route or could i take this other route right so i would just arm the consumers with the data or give them the choice john as you you said you know are you willing to pay for a carbon offset i think that's great or again just lay it out there hey the difference is you know like the the, one of the manufacturers was telling me we've analyzed it's 45 times worse for the our, our co2 footprint if we have to fly our goods in from Asia to the United States, 45 times worse. We'll express that differently. Why not on the final mile? What does that mean to you?
0: Yeah. Well, you're not going to get an argument from the marketing guy on the power of words, right? <laughs> right,
1: right. So,
0: <laughs> so and they're, they're not that expensive. You just got to come up with the right ones. And killing trees sounds like some good words to get people to motivate here. That's a really great, great point, Mike, for sure. So... When I saw this Gen Z thing, it reminded me of a of a personal story that I, I thought that I that I would share here so I can't remember if I've talked about that before that that I'm I'm kind of an old car guy. I have an old car uh, 64 and I have three kids, 14, 12, and seven and we lived in Manhattan for a long time. Moved out to the suburbs, maybe our own little great dispersion. And I had always told my wife, listen, when we move out, get a garage. I'm getting an old car. This, this is how you know it's going to be. I've been waiting for 25 years to, to get one. So we moved out here five, six years ago now. And I, and I did get the car, the 64. And so it has all the attributes of a 1964 car, meaning window cranks, stick shift, ashtrays, cigarette lighters, like things that are – completely foreign to somebody who's 14, 12 and 7. You know, they got in the car and asked me what the window crank was for and the stick shift was, you know, baffling to them. And you know, my dream was that this would be something that I could do with the kids and share with them and, and it it would be a cool thing, right? Uh, besides my selfish desire to have an old car cuz I think it's cool myself, my daughter, and I'm just going to focus on her cuz the story's a little bit about her who's a 14, maybe this is teenager, maybe it's not, but she does not like the car at all. Oh, and by the way, yeah, I guess I should say this, this obviously is a gas guzzler. Car has three carburetors. Yeah, it's it's probably one of the worst cars on the road. I forgot that point, assuming you take it for granted, but know that it eats a lot of gas and I'm sure it shoots a lot out the other side as well. And so she does not like the car for many reasons, but. The other day, she said to me, she said, Listen, you got to get rid of this car. And again, you know, like it's hurting me because I thought this would be something that we would do together. But what she said next made me feel a lot better. She said, You need to get rid of this car because it is really bad for the environment and you need to buy a Tesla. <laughs> right. So, so I don't know if it's the coolness of Tesla, but, you know, the fact that, She called out the sustainability and the environmental impact of this TriPower Pontiac was something that even though I wanted her to ride in the car with me, it made it all go away because I guess she's in this Gen Z cohort that is really thinking about our future. So I I, I felt a lot better. Uh, Maybe I'm doing at least something right with these kids. So it was it was a cool thing. I've
2: had many opportunities to, to to compare sustainability and progress and, and the, how, how sustainability is taking is is taking hold of a of a business community. With what happened with with the internet in mid 90s, I remember at that uh, at that time when the uh, first websites were around and all the companies that was pre dot com bubble and all the companies were started wondering should we have a website what what is the point of the internet what could we do with that and let's have a website just in case it is useful one day and and you would see hardly any information or anything in that well 20 years later, you wouldn't think of being a retailer without some kind of e-commerce facility. I mean, it just that would be baffling to most people. And I think sustainability is simply going the same way. We are still trying to some extent to, to find our feeds. There are some early adopters who have built that into, into the DNA of their company. And for, for them, it is completely intuitive that, yes, sustainability has to be built into the product, into the packaging, into the delivery method. But I think for some others, maybe they're not there. But fast forward in a few years' time, and I'm thinking, you know, 10 years, 15 years, maybe people would just look at the look at the internal combustion engine van in the city center and just wonder, what is that thing? You know, just why isn't it electric? It's just, what's wrong with you? The same way as if you go to, to any shop or whatever, they don't have a website, just what's weird so i think we are going through the same mental process and 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 the generational shift is going to help one way or another these people you're talking about the gen z and your daughter well in 10 15 years time they will be
0: in charge kind of <laughs> so we <laughs> we'd better adapt now it totally, totally listen what one thing you said really resonated this idea that if you're not like, we will be in a great place when we will certainly get there. If you are in this world and I'll just put it to merchants for a minute, but it really, really should be everybody. If you do not have a sustainability point of view and plan that's built into what you're selling, I think you said weird. I'll take it a step further and say you suck, right? <laughs> right? Like that will be a glorious day when, when the population Looks at your metaphor with with e commerce websites and you know where they are today and it's like, of course you have an e commerce website of course you're going to do sustainability of course you're going to make the environment better when that happens it's, it's going to be a glorious moment for sure all right so I, I think we could keep going on on stats but I but I I want to make sure to have you guys weigh in on some of what you're seeing elsewhere I know I know we've we've talked a little bit about it but Mike maybe I'll I'll start with you on. What else well, so are you seeing that maybe we haven't covered so far that you feel like would be good for for the audience to, to consider as you're out there talking to, to brands and retailers or partners?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think a couple of things. First of all, it's on the product itself, right? If you have a, a brand like Rothy's whose goal was to make their shoes and their handbags out of recycled plastic bottles, and I, I believe that they say they've, there are over a hundred tons or plus of, of ocean-bound marine plastic that they've kept out of the ocean. It's probably even way more than that now. But they take the plastics, they they make it into a fiber, and then they they actually weave the show the the shoes, instead of cut and sew. And they they think that takes another thirty-five percent out of maybe uh, waste. You've got. Uh, brands like Reformation, they're using excess material to, to manufacture the clothing. And this is all part of their sustainable mission, right? So then you've got brands like American Giant, 100% domestically sourced. And if you look at their story and they, they take it down to, look, we're, we're actually getting the cotton from the farmer that we know. And they're trying to say we get it all the way from the source. And if the majority of our sales are coming from America, we can be the best at reducing the carbon footprint and the supply chain because it's 100% here in America, right? And the, their name as well, they're not, they don't just call themselves American, they're like, hey, it's all made in America, right? American giant. So we're seeing brands do that as well. I mean, there, there is, I think maybe right before COVID and even during COVID, you had a little bit of the, the craft and you have like Etsy and you see all these startups, you know, maybe on Shopify where it's a limited run production or it's a smaller production. It's not just this mass produced, but there's a much higher quality. I've purchased many items that limited run the and they talk, I got this wallet and it talked about, hey, we we're buying parts of blankets that are made in. Organ and and there's, it's like the excess fabric. We put that in the inside. We use the cowhide that actually comes from shoes that are also made in Oregon. But it's the sort of the scraps or the excess that they can't make. Shoes. And you go, wow, you know this. You feel a lot better about that, right? Rather than, you know, hey, I'm buying a T-shirt and it's only five bucks, but can I wear it twice before it falls apart? And I, and I also think that actually a lot of the. A lot of the younger generation are are like that. I, I know that you you still find like with fast fashion, it's it's difficult because you've got some people, you know. Hey, I just I'm not quite there yet uh, on a sustainable platform. They they want to wear it and it's inexpensive and, and keep doing that, but. You know, as I think what we find through box poll and other things that you you definitely have more conscious consumers. And so maybe these startups like Allbirds and Rothys is they are really pushing that on the footwear. I mean, it's interesting, right? Look at Nike, look at Adidas. They've got things where you can, you know, bring in or send in your shoes and they can grind them down and, and put them into parts of the soles and you can now buy like shoes that are 100% recycled material, and it's pretty incredible, right? And maybe the larger companies, you, they feel forced into doing this, but I think actually a lot of them, they truly believe it, too. They've got people either within the company on their boards who are demanding more, better ESG reporting, and you know you look at Walmart as well as a massive company, but... They've got some big sustainability programs going and they're also supporting a lot of brands and companies that are, are trying to to lean in more. And so maybe to both your your comments earlier, you need to pay attention. I, I, there was an article that came out, I think, from McKinsey and it was saying something to the fact like, it, it's not just this, uh, I think it said like a, a ticket to heaven, it's the ticket to ride. If you're not doing sustainability programs, if you're not, and it's not just greenwashing, but being serious about it you're probably putting your corporation at risk.
0: Yeah. Something that I, I wasn't aware of this, but as I was reading up on a couple of things, I think it, it dovetails nicely with you know, kind of you know, the local recycling that you were describing, how that, that's ramping. And let me tell you, we need to figure that out because I want to say, I can't remember what it was, three, five years ago, here's a factoid. Most of our plastic refuse was being exported to China. 70% of it in, in the U.S. And these shipping lines, uh, the article I read, it was about uh, one of the shipping lines. The companies have started to stop bringing this stuff over to China because China is starting to say, like, as as their economy's grown, they actually have enough plastic refuse of their own now because obviously they use it to, to make stuff. So they've actually started to re- reject. Uh, this started a few years back now, but recently another... There are very few shipping lines left that, that are even going to China because China's not even taking it anymore as far as the plastic refuse. And so what it means for the U.S. is we got to figure out what to do with this stuff. You know, and I, I don't know, Sylvain, I, I, I suspect you might know a bit more about this than me. But it was a it was a recent article that I had read that is a problem that the U.S. faces.
2: You're completely right, and uh, and this is not the this is not just the US. I think the problem with waste is uh, is absolutely crucial for everybody. Yes, China stopped to to take plastic, and that completely disrupts some business models when it comes to managing the end of life of products or packaging or whatever. And you have sort of uh, two ways to to manage things like that. One is try to bolt to improve your waste management capacities at a company, sorry, not at a company level, but at a country level. I mean, this is not something that you would necessarily do yourself. Although at a company level, what we do here, for example, in our e-commerce sites, we have installed cardboard balers. We are investigating and we are increasing the numbers of uh, shrink wrap balers. So instead of sending a sort of mix of mixed municipal waste that ultimately goes to some kind of landfill, if you segregate waste at the point of generation. So within our site, whenever we, we we deal with this cardboard, with this shrink wrap, these are the two main waste categories that we are dealing with. That's why I mentioned them. By having these balers for these two materials, that becomes recycled raw material, and we sell them. So instead of having to deal with the waste, we don't know what to do, and we pay someone else to dispose of it in, a, in some trash landfill, that becomes raw material that somebody else is buying. So That's one aspect, manage waste at a company level. And that's very important to, to, I think, for listeners to know that this is something that we pay Particular attention to in our sites, we do manage uh, waste that that way, but trying to valorize them as much as we as we can, recycling the material or recovering energy, recovering, and finally as traditional disposal. So that's in in this order. So that's an important point. But at a country level, also what we start to see in Europe, and as you mentioned before, there. Are Probably Europe is leading to some extent when it comes to, to, to environmental legislation, but this is a worldwide trend. We see circular economy directives that create legislation around you have to make sure that your product can be repaired, can be recycled, and that forces you to design a product so it can be repaired. And oh, by the way, to be repaired, it needs to return. So that becomes a logistic way. Not only you deliver to the client, but at some at some point it will have to go back to either the the, the initial seller or to some re- reverse logistic site. And then the next stage of a European directive that is supposed to come in a couple of years is the eco-design directive that will say, okay, not only you have to repair the product, but actually it ha- it will have to be made of some recycled material or this or that. So. That's the two-way. And eventually, with these type of legislation that are coming your way, and especially California already has some, uh, some of these type of legislation around recycled raw material in uh, some plastics and the like, the goal is to limit, the, limit the quantity of waste to begin with. Because if you have no waste, then you don't have a problem to, to, to manage it. So that's how you do it. So China is not taking our plastic anymore. Well, why do we still have plastic?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, right. Different problem to solve, right? Um, Exactly. (laughs) So we were talking about metrics a a little while back, but I'm I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about just emissions reporting. And, you know, I think that's a journey for for a lot of folks and and it is not an easy task. What have we done at PB? I I know we've been on a path for a while there.
2: Yes, you're right. We have been reporting our uh, CO2 emission for a fair number of years, I think more than 10 or 12 years. That was before my time, so I'm a bit hesitant to to, to say the the, the exact starting date, pre-2010. And we have been reporting very publicly on the CDP. CDP is an uh, NGO this is the, probably the most well-known platform to share co2 emission it is used worldwide and uh, that's uh, very well recognized so we have been reporting what we what we call our scope one and two that may seem a bit technical but I think a couple of weeks ago the SEC published uh, a proposal for a new role applied that would affect listed companies in the u.s requiring them to disclose the CO2 emission, and at least what they say on scope one and two. So scope one, it's things that you burn directly, basically. To summarize very quickly, that's the diesel in your truck, right? And scope two is basically electricity that you use. So. Electricity doesn't emit any CO2 in itself, but that's the fact of generating electricity somewhere that usually generates a CO2 emission. So scope one and two, that's directly linked to your operation. And that's a given that companies will have to report that under these new SEC rules. Next year, in two years' time, in three years' time, I don't know exactly what is the, the time frame here because the rule is still in discussion. What we see as well is the potential that the SEC rule will expand to what we call scope 3, which is every, the CO2 emissions that are generated through your, your value chain. And that is something that is much more complicated to comprehend because it, it has anything to do with... The CO2 emission of your suppliers, of how your product is manufactured, of how your product is disposed of, or how much energy your product is, is using when when your client is using it, that sort of thing. It's, it's a much more complex, but it may sound technical, but because of this SEC rule, I think a lot of business will have to be very well aware of what these Scope 1, 2 and 3 are within months. And we have been publishing that this year. We, we publish our scope free as well for the first time. But this is something that more and more company will do. I'm definitely sure about that.
0: Okay. I guess it, I want to say it brings up another kind of area and point. We are part of the Smart Way Alliance. And Mike, I think you've talked with probably clients that are often asking about this. I know Sylvan, you helped us get in a smart way. I don't know. Maybe Mike, you could talk about it for a second. Sylvain, maybe you could talk about what it takes to get in and what it means, but I, I think the uh, audience probably could be good for them to learn a little bit about SmartWay.
1: Yeah, so John, SmartWay is a, it was started by the EPA, right, so it's, it's for the United States. At a previous trucking company I was at, we were a SmartWay member and we actually had a lot of folks that we're looking at smart way we were doing a lot of the, the things anyway and as i joined the esg committee it kind of asked the question like w- how far are we from being certified and it, it quite honestly was amazing and quite a blessing that i think it was oh, you know, we almost have it all done. And within like a month or two, we were certified. And really what that says though, is we're measuring a couple of things. It's, you're trying to reduce, you have a baseline on your carbon, your CO2 footprint. The second thing is you have a, a baseline on the fuel consumption. There's other aspects to it where you talk about reducing your, your truck idling, things like that. Different states, California has what's called California Air Resource Board, uh, CARB, very aggressive. You had to have either new equipment or you, your older Equipment had to have things like special filters, etc., to reduce the, uh, you know, it was really smog abatement. But What we saw is some of the larger companies making either a requirement or preference. If you had a fleet, or even if you're a 3PL, if you were a SmartWay member, number one, that would give you either preference or it was a requirement to even get a bid, right? So for larger companies. Secondarily, then it was looking at the score and it now falls into a lot of the sustainability efforts that people are trying to take. And SmartWay provides great resources. I mean, they they give fleet owners Hey, if you look at low profile rolling resistance tires, you know, you might be able to save one to to six percent fuel. If you put air dams on your trucks, you know you can gain another one to three percent, et cetera. But all these side skirts, et cetera, maybe they don't sound like a lot on an individual basis. But if you were to take all of it in in the whole, you know the next thing you realize is you you are able to reduce your fuel consumption. And if your whole fleet is doing it, and certainly then the number of miles that you're driving, it has a, a very impactful effect so that's fantastic you know our fleet we are smartway certified and and even as a 3pl you know as we're looking at managing additional trucking assets you know we make sure that we're following everything we can for smartway and so uh, the brands that would use us they can be assured again it it is a you know you could say it's like a quality check or at least you're you're being efficient effective and doing the right thing that the industry is is uh, all moving together to do
0: thanks for that mike Sylvain, I I know you were part of this process. Anything that you want to add on top of Mike's comments?
2: Yes, yes. I think uh, SmartWay is, as Mike said, uh, there are lots of resources on SmartWay. From a practical point of view, it's it's a very good program. I think it is built on the premise that you can't really improve what you don't measure. So to be part of SmartWay, we had to... On the very practical level, we had to prepare lots of uh, lots of reports, uh, get lots of data. But getting this data enables you to know your business more, and then bits by bits, like Mike mentioned, we can improve on little things. So our trucks are largely uh, latest generation type of trucks. We we have some design in terms of aerodynamics to remove the drag. Mike mentioned the, the sort of uh, anti-idling type of software or system that we have in our trucks so that if the truck is idling for too long without any any sort of a reason, because it's obviously not in traffic or something like that, then automatically cuts off, and then you reduce the consumption of, a, of the truck. We also have telematics as well, for example, in our, in our truck, so we can optimize the routing. And then once you are part of smart you see these numbers because you need these numbers to be part of smart So this is the first step you report. But then you see the numbers and you try to improve because you won't go from a 1963 Pontiac to a Tesla in one go. (laughs) 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 I I, I mean, electric trucks, I'd love to have a Tesla semi-truck. I'm not exactly sure if anybody has seen any any on the road just yet. Joke apart, every truck manufacturer are working on on electric semi-trucks, but it's not exactly there. We are going to to test electric vehicles for in you know, in our operation. Hopefully this year we are actively working on that. But there is a learning curve in that in terms of how can we use that. Where does it make more sense to to use that on what sort of route and uh, what are the operational constraint that we have to, to learn to live with, because we will have to live with that because it's only going one way. So sure, the equipment will will improve, but at some point we will have to, to switch. So let's learn now how to adapt to the new world. That's really our approach.
0: Yeah, it's a great point And hopefully it makes sense for others considering going down this path. So I think that this has been a a great conversation. I hope that it's going to be useful for folks because it's such an important topic. Mike and Silvana, I want to thank you guys for joining today. And then I I want to do one final public service announcement, something that I came across a couple weekends ago now. A friend of mine told me about it. If anything, this is uh, should inspire you to think about sustainability even more. On on Netflix, there is a great series out called "Our Great National Parks." It's orated uh, by President Obama. I watched the first installment the other day, and it is fantastic. It is incredibly done. But you only need to see ten minutes of it to convince yourself that we got to fix sustainability, and we got ESG is important. So for those listening. Check out our our great national parks on Netflix. It will inspire you for sure. So Mike and Soban, again, thanks. And we will talk to you guys again soon. Thank you, John.